In a world of uncertainty, one thing is for sure. Cancer doesn't stop during a global crisis. On Saturday, June 13, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society will host a trailblazing event, Big Virtual Climb, sponsored by AbbVie, to support their investment in groundbreaking research to advance blood cancer cures and its first-in-class patient education and services, including financial support and clinical trial navigation. Step up to take cancer down by climbing 61 floors or 1,762 steps. Inside or outside, on stairs, on the road, or your treadmill, climb your way. Join us for an opening ceremony and then take on your climb with our heart-pumping playlist. Join us on June 13 from coast to coast as we come together to climb, conquer, and cure. Register at lls.org slash bigclimb. everybody and welcome to another episode of Wings for Breakfast, our twice weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic. I am Max Boltman. With me as always is Prashant Ayer. And you know the season is officially over when Steve Eiserman is doing a uh, press conference. Red Wings basically had their end of year media availabilities. So it was Eiserman on Wednesday, Jeff Blaschel, Luke Lindenning, and Dylan Larkin uh, this afternoon on Thursday. And, uh, you know, the, the main news item I would say that came out of all of that is that Steve Eiserman is going to bring Jeff Blaschel back again as head coach next season. Uh, I think you and I both were probably expecting that, though, by this point, right? Yeah, and, you know, to remind everyone, this uh, came from – the reason this had to be announced was uh, from Craig Custance's story earlier in January. The Red Wings had a team option for Blaschel's contract where basically after the end of the regular season, uh, the Wings had seven days to make a decision as to whether or not they were going to – bring Blaschel back for the final year of his deal, uh, or if they would elect to to terminate the contract, which involved a $300,000 buyout. Um, you know, like you said, Max, I think both of us kind of expected that, uh, you know, he would be back. And I think, you know, I, I tried to run a poll preempting the conference just to get what the, the public opinion was. And uh, of those that voted, you had roughly a, a 30% kind of in favor of bringing them back and 70% against bringing them back. And, you know, you and I, I think, are both kind of on the same side of the coin here where I don't know that it makes a huge difference whether or not you bring him back or you bring in another coach. I think what Eisenman touched on and what I think a lot of fans haven't really put, uh, you know, in, put into context is how bad have the Red Wings teams been from a talent perspective that what you're asking Blashville to effectively do is kind of spin gold out of yarn. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I think that, you know, we've talked about it certainly on the show, but I, I do think it's, it can be hard to contextualize like what exactly that means. Everyone knows the Red Wings aren't a very good team, but also the Red Wings weren't a very good team last year, for example. And, you know, they weren't historically bad, but I thought you did a really good job. Uh, in a, you, you had a post today. Uh, it was a, a graphic of the, their standing points above, above replacement on the roster and just how far behind the talent gap was this year. I, I was looking at it yesterday, even when Iserman was talking about, you know, how, you know, frankly, he said it, it's not fair to judge, uh, Jeff Blaschel or the coaching staff, uh, until there's more talent on the roster. 
Um, and I, so I was looking it up and the year before that Blaschel arrived, so he arrived in 2015. So the 2014, 15 Red Wings, the seven leading scorers on that team were Henrik Zetterberg, Pavel Datsuk, Tomas Tatar, Gustav Nyquist, Justin Ablocator, Nicholas Cronwall, and Riley Shan. Um, numbers eight and nine, if you're wondering, Darren Helm and Danny DeKaiser and number 10, Stephen Weiss. Um, Zetterberg, re- you know, retires with a back injury as an LTIR. Datsuk, uh, goes to the KHL one year after Blashwell arrives. They trade Tatar for draft picks. They trade Nyquist for draft picks. Abdulkader declines pretty steeply. Cromwell retires, and obviously Shane, uh, he got traded to Pittsburgh, I think, right? Something like that? Yep, traded to yeah. Pittsburgh. So, and Shane was never really, like, that should never be one of your, I mean, he was a first round pick, I get it. He had 36 points, uh, as, in 79 games, a 23 year old. But ultimately, if you're going into anything where, you know, you, that team was already being carried by those top four guys, Zetterberg, Datsuk, Tatar, Nyquist, and all four of them were gone. You know, you know, Nyquist was still around as recently as last year, but you're talking about a complete turnover on the top end of the roster, and that is ultimately what you're looking at and what that looks like. Now the guys who are the top of the roster have all played their entire NHL careers under Blaschel, and I know, you know, you get into, you can get into a real gray area trying to figure out how much credit to give or not give a coach or blame to give or not give a coach as it comes to player development. But I don't think it's, I don't think it's insignificant that all of the Red Wings, um, top young players now have played their entire careers in the NHL under Blaschel and managed to get to that level. Yeah, exactly. And, and you've even seen kind of significant steps forward from, you know, Dylan Larkin and, in Anthony Manta, at least in this past season, where I thought, you know, Larkin did a, a much better job of rediscovering his his 200-foot game, kind of the point totals weren't where they needed to be. But again, remember, this was a guy who was playing on arguably the worst roster that's been put together in the last 30 years, definitely the, the worst roster that's uh, been around for the last 13 years from an advanced analytics standpoint. And that was kind of what I was trying to indicate with the graph that I tweeted right. out, um, you know, on the 28th in the evening. So, you know, this was really a, a mind-bogglingly like bad team. Like this was just an awful, awful team. And you're asking for this coach to have a substantial impact. And I get that there's more that goes into the criticism of Blashill than simply results. Like there are certainly the the critiques of his in-game, you know, strategy seems weird. He's he likes to juggle the lines a lot. Uh, he the Wings have a lot of too many men penalties. Um, the wings tend to have issues with, you know, awareness and, and things like that on the ice. The biggest issue I have is it's hard to separate how much of that should be assigned to the players. Um, just by, again, you're just not as talented of a player. You don't have that same offensive or defensive zone awareness. You can be coached and told what to look for, but your read in a, in a split second is maybe different than what you had thought about doing. And that read is what results in this happening. So, you know, at the end of the day, I, I think it's very hard to take all of that blame and assign them. And, and some of it is mischaracterized. Like, you know, people like to throw out the too many men on the ice issue. The Wings are only, I mean, they're, they're bad. They're, they're eighth worst in the league since Blashill took over, but it's eight, eighth worst at 42 and really the best team, quote unquote, excluding Vegas since they didn't play all the years is, is Pittsburgh at 29. So the difference between kind of worst and uh, best is not all that dramatic. So it's really not like a significant uptick. Uh, so I, I just really think a lot of the, the criticism gets disproportionately placed on him. 
And, you know, at the end of the day, I think this is just a, a team that's not strong enough. It's been eight years in the making ever since Nick, ever since Nick Listrom retired in 2012. And, and now this is the end product you have and it's going to be, you know, digging your way out at this point. Uh, by feeling on, you know, general, you know, the way that people view coaches, there's certainly, you can find any number of things to dislike or like about any coach. And in my estimation, it all comes back to whether you're winning or losing. So no, people can say it's not about the results. It's about systems or structures or penalties or whatever. It, you know, there's certainly things you can find in there to say, you know, do you wish Jeff Blaschel's teams played a, a more electric brand of hockey? But my guess is as if the Red Wings were winning a bunch of games uh, right now, no one would really particularly care how they were doing it. So at the end of the day, the response to that is, but they're not winning a ton of games to which my response is right. And so now we're back where we start and it's about wins and losses. So I, you know, it's not that I don't believe people have those gripes. I just feel that most gripes ultimately originate and come back to that wins and losses phenomenon, which to your point, it's really hard to separate from talent. It really is. It's really hard. And it it would be really hard to, to look at, you know, a style of play and separate that from the players who are executing it. Like, if a style of play isn't working, it's not actually as easy as you would like to think to say it's the result of the philosophy rather than the players on the ice doing it. Because if you don't have the most talented players, they're going to have a harder time pulling off anything you tell them to do or want them to do or instinctively learn to do. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. Like stylistically, Lashell is not all that different from Mike Babcock. And, and so in 2014, 2015, you know, Babcock's Red Wings are playing the same way. They get 100 points and and they make the playoffs and and they give Tampa a run in seven games. 2015-2016, the team still plays very you know very similarly. They actually only win two fewer games than the team before. They still make it to the playoffs and they still play Tampa. And it's really not until you know you get to to 2016-2017 where the Wings really have their first season where they don't make the playoffs. And again, at that point, you've already illustrated. Uh, the issue here, that's their first season without Pavel Datsuk. And so now you're finally like dropping off key parts. You're going from losing Nick Lidstrom after 2012 and Brian Rafalski. You're going to, to losing Pavel Datsuk after, you know, 2016. And so it just, as these big exits of talent happen, it's just hard to, to mentally replace that. And, and there's no one that could have done that for Detroit. And at the end of the day, when you go to try and actually assign you know, credit or blame to a coach. I think Micah Blake McCurdy, so ineffective math on Twitter, has probably come the closest to doing it. And ultimately what he's found is the coach makes such an infinitesimally small impact on five-on-five shot impacts and, and things like that, uh, that it's it's just hard to even say that they're really to blame. Like if you look at Blaschel's isolated five-on-five impact from, from Micah's site, hockeyviz.com, you know, in 2015, 2016, it's a net of, uh, plus 0.1%. In 2016, 2017, it's a net of plus 0.4%. Like this is what you're talking about. And by percent, I'm talking about shot rates here. It's just, it's such a small percentage that the coach is truly influencing here. And even the best coaches, coaches don't have substantial impact. So at the end of the day, I think the biggest issue is you've had a massive exit of talent. You can blame general management for not doing a better job of drafting in those 
2012 to 2019 years. The Wings didn't get a lot of NHL players out of that. You can fault management for giving out long-term contracts. You can fault management for, you know, not spending wisely in free agency. I think those are all valid criticisms. But at the end of the day, it's resulted in the worst roster put together uh, in the last, you know, at safely say the last 13 years, probably the last 30 years um, or more. And you just can't expect that much out of your coach. Yeah. And now I will say one of the things that I think will be the response to, to what you and I have just said is, okay, well then are we saying that a coach basically never deserves any blame, never deserves to be fired? And I, I think there's a distinction there between coaches, you know, don't necessarily have this like massive impact on the on ice, you know, play to play, minute to minute, shot to shot, what's happening. They are responsible in some way for the ultimate, you know, the, the progress of the team, how it, how a team handles things. Um, you know, we're not saying there's never a good time to fire a coach. We're just saying when you're looking for, uh, how to parse through what a coach is responsible for and whether or not, you know, having a season like this should categorically result in firing, you know, it, it gets really tough to make that case, right? Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. And, and again, I, my comment shouldn't be misconstrued as saying that, you know, Blasio is basically uh, entirely excused from everything that's happened and that none of this should be portioned out to him. I think at the end of the day, it's just important to remember that there are some things that need to be portioned out to him. And the coach's role at the end of the day is to get the most out of their players. Um, and so when you feel like the coach is no longer connecting with the players, when you feel like the coach is no longer maximizing what he can get out of your important players, that's the right time to make coaching changes. And frankly, from the conversations you've had and seen really with Dylan Lark and Anthony Mantha and guys like that on the roster, none of them have said that. None of them have even gone out of the way of deflecting the question. They've actually gone over the top of kind of saying they have enjoyed playing for Jeff Blaschel. So it's it's hard to, to, you know, wrap your head around it. But at the end of the day, there's no issue bringing him back for another year. You reevaluate on that timeline. And really, I think the biggest challenge for me is going to be once you started infusing talent into this team, so if Detroit is lucky and they, they win the draft lottery and you get Alexi Lafreniere, how does he adjust and adapt as he gets a differently constructed roster? And I think that'll be your true testament to whether or not he's the right coach from that point on. Yeah, I mean, and, and it, I don't think we can really look into the future at this point and say, expect Jeff Blaschel to be the coach until he has a playoff team and then you're deciding if they don't, you know, go far enough. Like, I don't think we're saying that either. But I think what what I would argue is that when you have a team like this, I think this is the point you're making too, the 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 logic behind firing your coach really probably comes down to, do you think they're doing a detriment to the team? Do you think that they are guiding them in the right manner? And, you know, to me, I, I think that the way that the Red Wings rode through this season, it, there were some brutal, brutal losses. And there were some days the locker room was, you know, after the Toronto game the night before Thanksgiving, that is the most bummed out I've ever seen it in, in my tears on the beat. Um, but they still managed to weather that season ultimately better than I kind of thought they would. I mean, Dylan Larkin talked about toward the end of the year, how, how he felt like it had kind of hardened him as, as a player. And, um, you're going to see how these guys respond to it in the years to come. And we can't ultimately 
know what, what that's going to look like at the time. But to my read, like I, I think Jeff Leschel has done a good job weathering that and it's impossible to prove just like, just like kind of the alternative is, but if you're going to make a change, if you're going to, if you, if, if they would have made a change, they would also be putting someone else in a terrible position to come in and try and make that difference as well. And if it didn't work, then, you know, to a lot of people at home, it doesn't really make a difference, but to an organization, rapid fire coaching changes and never having that real security and the, the, you know, instability that creates among the players, that becomes a real problem. So I, I recognize that one of the main, you know, pushbacks, I pushes back that I get um, whenever I've talked about Blaschel really for my entire time on the beat, because it's, it's been a topic pretty much that whole time is, well, it doesn't matter, make a change. It can't be any worse or something. And I, I it probably does feel like that right now because it, you just, you know, if as a fan, you, you just watched your team go through one of the most miserable seasons of the salary cap era. It actually does get worse. And the way it gets worse is when you start making impulsive reactionary decisions like that, um, rather than actually assessing like what is, what is happening in front of you. And I don't know how long Jeff Blaschel will be the coach of the Red Wings. If he's going to be the coach that, you know, is behind the bench the next time they win a playoff series. I don't know that either way. Uh, but I, I think it would have been reactionary and impulsive to make that change after the season, especially because I, I think he did a fine job of helping the team get through that. Yeah. I mean, I think you, you kind of summed it up pretty well that even if you brought in somebody else, you know, I don't know how you would set expectations. I don't know what you would really use to be satisfied because I think at the end of the day, the talent level is ultimately what drives the ship here. And and I just don't know that you're going to get anything more out of it, whether it's Blaschel, whether it's someone else. And so, you know, I think it's, it's very easy to say, let's move forward another year. The team is not going to be demonstrably different. You know, we can talk about this in a little bit uh, in terms of what Eisman was talking about from a free agency standpoint, but you're likely rolling in with a very similar roster to what you had this year. And so there's just not going to be a whole lot different. So you might as well uh, kind of keep that piece of consistency. I, I agree, especially in a year like this. And this is a point that I saw some people make uh, on the internet was, you know, this of all years is, is probably if there's ever a year to, to, uh, to, to emphasize the consistency and the stability with all the other uncertainty and turmoil under everyone's feet right now. Uh, this is absolutely the year to, to bump that up the priority list, right? Yeah. I mean, I completely agree. Yeah. All right. Let's move on from there. Um, that was only one and it was like one of the first items discussed in Eiserman's almost 45 minutes yesterday. Um, you know, certainly I, I wouldn't say it was, uh, Headline grabbing across the board, but a lot of interesting subjects touched on. He did say he plans to name a captain before next year. I'm putting the odds at what, you know, nine to, not nine to one, cause that means it's not likely. Yeah, one to nine odds on Dylan Larkin being your, uh, your, uh, captain for next season. I mean, it might even be worse than that, right? Like it's like 99, right? Yeah, I mean, he's really the only candidate because, uh, I think when you think about it and you look at the roster, I mean, if you're trying to even come up with other guys, I mean, who are, who else is on the list? I mean, you could say Justin Ablocator, but again, there's been, uh, you know, a significant drop off in his play to where he was scratched a lot of the season. I mean, that doesn't necessarily preclude you from being captain. Uh, you know, the Buffalo Sabres a few years back, you know, had a captain that was often scratched, but more often than not, uh, you're kind of looking for the captain that's leading by example, always on the ice, 
So I don't know that it's going to be Abdulkader. No, and, and Eiserman has said whoever is the next captain is going to be the captain for a long time. And, you know, Abdulkader, no matter how you slice it, is is near the end of his NHL career. Right. And then so then after that, it's like, is it Danny DeKaiser? Is it Philip Ronick? Uh, I mean, those are really the only guys I can put in that. It's Larkin. Scene. I mean, it's, it's Larkin. Yeah. That's it. Like, it's, yeah. it's, he's the guy. He is the guy who answers questions. If there's any, if there, you know, like Luke Lindenning is, is a pretty frequent media guy. So is Ablocator. But chopping all the criteria together, Larkin is the guy who answers for the toughest losses. He has developed what I think to be the most direct voice for the team when something is going wrong he is the one delivering the message uh and you know Eiserman talked in an unrelated way about Larkin and what he his experiences with him were one of we thought Larkin could have been named captain before this year and one of the reasons Eiserman you know said he didn't want to name a captain was he wanted to get to know everybody well he's gotten to know everybody and you know while he was not talking about the captaincy when he said this his his comments about Larkin were um He's very impressed with him. He thinks being a member of the Red Wings and improving the team is very, very important to him. He takes it seriously. He's an excellent player. He's a great leader. He's dedicated, mentally strong, committed. He might as well have said Dylan Larkin is the captain. Yeah, I mean, basically, like I, I think that's very much uh, in line with describing one player on the Red Wings. And you saw it. I mean, you saw it this year. Like in a year without a captain, who was the one facing the media for the most part at the right. – into the season after a seven nothing loss, an eight two loss, like it was Dylan Larkin. And sure, I think a lot of people have made the comment that, well, the guy kind of wears the emotions on his sleeve. You know, he breaks some sticks, he uh, he chirps the refs, he takes a lot of penalties. These were all criticisms of basically any young captain. Uh, I mean, you think about it; these were said about Sidney Crosby when he was first uh, kind of coming up with the Penguins, and he was named captain very early in his career. Jonathan Taves, I mean, a lot of people forget Taves was uh, very close to self-destructing in the 2013 playoffs. He took three consecutive penalties in a single game against the Red Wings and literally had to be talked down by his teammate to calm down. These are not common. It's not like this is a rare thing for a young player. These are young players that are going to wear their emotions on their sleeves. And it's fine because at the end of the day, you're looking for them to lead by example on the ice with their results. And Dylan Larkin gets you the best results on the Red Wings. So I think all of the emotions kind of argument is a bunch of crap. And more than anything, I do want to see my captain getting fired up when something is, you know, going wrong or not going your way uh, and you need to kind of turn the tide. That's that passion that you're looking for. That's that kind of desire and and knowing that they care and they're going to push you uh, to be the best that you can be. So I think it's a completely invalid criticism of him. Yeah, maybe you want Dylan Larkin to be slightly less demonstrative, maybe. But I'm just telling you, the reason that he is that way is the reason that he has gotten to the levels that he has as a player. Blaschel talks all the time about how like the fire that burns inside Larkin is one of his best traits. I believe that 100%. Like maybe you want him to show it a little less. And I, you know, personally, I think all players should show whenever they're mad to the full extent of it. I think that's what makes it fun, and that's personality. But even if you're someone who wants him to be less demonstrative, you don't want him to be too much. You don't want that that impulse to go away. So, uh, no, I, I I mean, I think that here's the fact of it. If Eiserman's saying that he wants to name a captain next year, um, after saying that, 
you know, he, he wants to get to know everybody. I don't know how to read that any other way than, okay, I got to know everybody. And yeah, I know who my captain is, right? Like, and if there is a captain on this year's Red Wings team, it was Dylan Larkin. He might have already, he might as well have already been. So I, I never want to put a hundred percent on something because you can look real dumb that way, but it's 99.9, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, and I completely agree. I just don't see any valid criticism of him. And I think he's done more than enough to demonstrate that he's the right leader moving forward for the wings. Yep. Yep. I'm with you there. Um, the other thing that stood out the most to me is Eiserman was asked if he, uh, one year into the job, you know, he, he was, he's been very patient, projected a lot of, um, you know, messages about, Patience being the key, and that certainly has included in player acquisition. He was asked on that call, does he think he would be had his level of aggressiveness changed at all in his first year? And you know, he didn't certainly didn't uh, push the chips in, but he did kind of acknowledge, maybe slightly. He's not someone who wants to go. He, he uses the term he doesn't want to make a splash in free agency. He wants sensible signings and uh, wants the contract to work work uh, for both players. He does not want to quote unquote get a player at all costs. However, here is a quote. To get those elite players, if in fact they're there, you got to spend a lot of money for a long time. And I don't know if we're a market for those types of players at this time. That's the reality. If a player wants to play in Detroit, we're certainly going to explore every opportunity. But the deal has to work for both parties. I'm going to put an ellipsis in there. Would we be a little more aggressive in free agency? Maybe so. That doesn't mean we're going out and spending seven-year max contracts just to get a player, but we're certainly going to have some roster spots to fill. We're going to need to fill them. We won't be able to fill them with all of our younger players, so we're trying to improve the team, but ultimately we're not trying to do everything overnight because that can really handcuff you at times. We're trying to use free agency wisely, end quote. What do you take away from that comment and that kind of messaging overall from Meiserman yesterday? You know, it's very interesting. I mean, I, I think the comment about him saying that we'll be aggressive maybe a little bit more than the year before, but not necessarily looking to make a huge splash. And then the, the other piece that kind of stood out to me was the caveat that, you know, if there's a player that really wants to play in Detroit and we can make it work and there's a deal that works for both sides, then, yeah, we can certainly uh, give that consideration. Um, so I think – Basically, this was a very vague way of saying the chips are all on the table. I'm going to explore every opportunity, but I think at the end of the day, this is a, this is all part of that slow rebuild process for Detroit. I think the, the vision of the organization is very clear here in that they are not going to rush this. They're going to do this the right way. And that means making deals that work for the team as well as whatever free agent they want to bring in. They're not going to throw out money to try and bring names in that are ultimately going to put the team into a bad position moving forward. So, you know, yes, you and I have talked about at length. Are they going to kick tires on Tory Krug? Are you going to kick tires on some of the other free agents? Maybe so. Maybe if there's a deal that, you know, hey, Tory Krug wants to play in Detroit and he's willing to take a two-year deal for, you know, $7.5 million, that's a deal that Detroit can make. That's a deal that I think maybe helps both sides. Uh, you know, again, Krug may be getting a little bit more money than whatever average annual value, uh, he would get on another contract. He may get a deal that, uh, puts him a little bit closer to home. But from Detroit's perspective, it's not a long-term deal. And right now they've got money to spend. So, you know, maybe there, there are deals out there like that that can, that can work both ways. But I think the reassuring thing for me is at the end of the day, uh, it doesn't sound like he's willing to deviate from the plan he laid out at his introductory conference last year. Yeah, to me, more aggressive means last year they went out, 
they signed two. I mean, they signed uh, Pickard, but you know, for in, for NHL purposes, they signed two guys to two-year, uh, three million dollar average annual value deals. Uh, if you're a little more aggressive than that, maybe you're going into the three, four, five-year range, but not with many people at all. Like maybe you're, if you're finding the right fit, and I certainly I have said I think Tory Krug could make sense for them, um, but especially if Eisenman's talking about avoiding those seven-year max kind of term contracts, you know, Tory Krug's not someone who's going to, uh, I assume, leave a Stanley Cup contender to take a hometown discount for a hometown team that is at the very bottom of the standing. So if you want to get Tory Krug, it's not like you're not going to have to make a competitive offer on something like that. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is, again, it has to be from Krug's perspective that he wants to come back knowing full well he's going to take less money to do it. Um, like that, that's the kind of deal that I think Detroit knows they're going to make. They're not going to chase. They're not going to get into a bidding war. They're not going to add these incentives. You know, the things, if it goes back to our conversation that we just had a little bit earlier, where if you want to know how Detroit got where they were, it was bad drafting. It was, you know, poorly designed free agency contracts, contracts that were too long, contracts that had too many clauses. So no trade clauses, no mood clauses. Um, and then ultimately it was, the re-signing of their players that were not star players to to long-term contracts. So I think at the end of the day, what you want to continue to see out of Iserman is avoiding those mistakes. You want him to draft well. You want him to to be aggressive in free agency, but not at the cost of of getting into bidding wars and overpaying guys. You want him to try and avoid those clauses that limit his ability to be flexible with roster turnover. And you want to see him do a good job uh, turning over the roster on role players and extending his players that he believes are part of his core. And so I think the message he gave in that conference is very consistent uh, with what he said last year. And now you're hoping that the actions that happened this summer, again, follow that same pattern to, again, avoid Detroit kind of being stuck in this prolonged period uh, of, of, you know, basically bad hockey. Yeah, I, I don't, yeah, I, I agree. I, I don't think this is something that should be read as, you know, Iserman's ready to be, you know, quote unquote capital A aggressive scouring the top of the market. And I, I, I do think it's fair to put Tory Krug in a separate bucket just because of the hometown connection. Um, he also has a, a really good relationship with, with Jeff Blashell. I mean, they, they started their kind of careers ultimately together getting back to the USHL. Um, so I, I think it's fair to keep him in a maybe slightly separate bucket, but still as a kind of reach. But it does tell me that, you know, maybe he's, he's recognizing just how far off this team is. And, you know, we can look at like the second line center job, for example, and say, that's an area the Red Wings really need to improve next year. You can look at the defense and say, yeah, they got a lot of, you know, interesting young D and coming through the system at various places, but they're going to need another veteran D up there. And maybe that doesn't need to be a, kind of minimum contract guy either, right? Like I, I think that if anything, what I take away is other than kind of that unicorn situation of Tory Krug that ultimately I still think seems like a reach based on what it would kind of take for that to make sense for Detroit and what Krug's going to be able to command on the market. Um, I just think it means kind of an, an maybe a slightly higher caliber free agent than maybe you and I, you or I would have projected, let's say two days ago. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And so, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, you may, you will see him go out. I think, you know, you and I have said this consistently that he'll probably go out and add a veteran defenseman, um, whether that is bringing back Madison Bowie, whether that is bringing somebody new in, 
um, or doing both. And you, you may see him add some depth forwards depending on how he chooses to add the restricted free agents. But I don't think uh, you'll see any big splashes. You may see him kick some tires that, you know, we'll never know about publicly. But at the end of the day, I think it's a, it's a, it's a good message for Eiserman and, and fans should kind of be reassured that he's got the plan laid out. And you just have to give him the time. Let me ask you a few names that are above the kind of Nemethilpola tier, but still aren't in that, you know, seven year max value tier. And you tell me if you'd, if you'd, uh, be interested in them. Chris Tanev. Uh, I would be interested because I think he's on his way down from the peak of his career. He's still, you know, was a, a relatively decent shutdown defenseman at the peak of his career. I think at this point, he's not that anymore. That being said, he's still a, a good veteran to have around and, and so I think if you were able to get him on the right term where it's not more than two years uh, for for a fair amount of money, I think that he's a fine guy I'd be interested in. Travis Hamannick or TJ Brody? I think both of those are going to be too expensive or they're going to want a little bit more security or term. I think Brody in particular is, is uh, far outside Detroit's budget. Hamannick could be interesting, but I do have some concerns – uh, with how much security he would want uh, moving forward and and uh, if he would be a good fit for Detroit where they're at right now. Justin Schultz. He's, a, he's another good, um, you know, puck-moving defenseman. I think he had a lot of success after he left Edmonton for Pittsburgh. But that being said, I think, again, uh, you're probably paying this guy too much money or for too long, and I don't know that he gives you uh, really – good enough results to want to do that. Justin Braun? Braun would be an interesting one because I think you could get him cheaply, and I think you could get him for relatively short term. Um, so I think he's a guy that I would put in that same bucket as Chris Tanev as a guy that I'd be interested in. Okay, and then last two uh, from the Carolina Hurricanes, Trevor Van Riemsdyk and Joel Edmondson. Yeah, I think both would be great. Edmondson obviously brings Stanley Cup experience from his time with the Blues. Uh, I think, I, you know, living in Carolina, I've been to a fair amount of Hurricanes games. You know, I like what you see in, in Trevor Ram, Van Riemsdyk. I think uh, both of them will likely not be back in Carolina, given that uh, they really do need to move up Jake Bean from, from the AHL, as he's just been dominant down there at this point. And so uh, I think both will be available, and, and, and Edmondson's a journeyman, and Van Riemsdyk's a slightly better player, in my opinion, but... Both would give you a solid, you know, second, third line uh, defenseman. And the, the, the 2C market does not look like it's going to be robust. Just looking through it here, I mean, the names are like Grandland. That might be it. Craig Smith. I mean, that's really it. And you're not going to get someone, I think, if that's going to be a justified 2C. You're going to be playing someone at 2C out of necessity the same way you went through this year, which is why – I'd say if Sam Gagne is willing to run it back, then sure, run it back with Gagne for two years if he's willing to do that, a year if he's willing to do that, no more than three years, um, because he was a guy that seemed like he could at least play a little bit above his head um, and not completely drown in the same fashion that Philpola and Nielsen did towards the beginning of the year. Yeah, no, I I, think I like that option too. And I, you know, I don't think he's going to light it up, but he's got some skill. He can play um, – he can play with with the kinds of players that you're going to need him to. I mean, that's ultimately yeah. we're thinking that's Philip Zadina's line ultimately at this point, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would suspect that they're going to give Zadina a run on his own line next year. 
Yeah, I would think so too. Um, let me just double check something real quick. Uh, yeah, I mean, one of the, so I mentioned Mikhail Granlin and Craig Smith. This guy would not be a free agent. This would require a, um, a trade and this would obviously be probably an additional asset coming back. Uh, Detroit's way in this, but would you think about Kyle Turris at 2C? Absolutely not. Okay. You need to give, uh, lots and lots and lots of incentives to take him on. His deal right now is still a little bit too poisonous for me to wrap my head around. I think, again, if you're Detroit, the whole point of doing this right now as you're turning over this roster is to make sure you retain the ability to be flexible with your roster. And so you're trying to avoid taking on any of these long-term deals, uh, any of these contracts that are extending beyond a couple of years, and that's what the good teams are doing right now is they're taking these deals and they're finding ways to give the short-term deals to the players that are the role players, the long-term deals to the players that are the star players, and turning over those role players as they need to. And so a guy like Kyle Turris, you know, even though he's a big name, quote-unquote, he's 30. He's on the wrong side of his career. He is going to start depreciating in, in his play, and he's still got owed $6 million for the next four years. So from my perspective, the only way I'm taking Turris is if Nashville is attaching an asset to that uh, for me to take Turris. Yeah, it would have to come with an asset attached. Yeah, I mean, you're, and it would have to be a relatively good asset to, again, hamstring my cap for, uh, you know, four more years. Because, again, prior to the, the COVID-19 shutdown, um, you know, the expectation was that the league salary cap was going to be increasing a lot. There's going to be a new television deal. You know, things like that expansion obviously brings in more money. Uh, the salary cap was likely going to be going up each of the next few years, so it may not have been a bad gamble to do that. I think now with the shutdown, the still unclear picture as to whether or not Phase 2 will ever happen and Phase 3 will ever happen uh, as part of the NHL's return to play plan, I just don't think you can bite on making a move like this with the uncertainty and how the cap situation is going to be playing out over each of the next couple of years. You still don't even know when the 2021 uh, or 2020-2021 season would start. It looks like January is being targeted. So, again, that revenue loss is going to have an impact on that final salary cap. Yeah, I was not able to ask uh, Eiserman his appetite for that kind of deal on that call anyway yesterday. It, it would be interesting to just even know how that fits into, you know, if, if they're talking about contracts that make sense for player and team, oftentimes trading for a bad contract by definition means a contract that does not make sense for your team and you're really just doing it in order to kind of buy a pick or buy a prospect. So uh, I, I would be curious, what, wish that I would have had the, the chance to ask that yesterday. Um, but, you know, next time. Um, anything else stand out to you from from what you took away from the Eisenman call or any curiosities from uh, from the Jeff Blaschel or Dylan Larkin, Luke Lindenning press conferences today? No, I think, you, were, you know, the only thing that's kind of funny for me is from a draft preparation standpoint, uh, you know, they made a mention that, uh, they're unable to obviously physically meet with any of the prospects like they typically would. And it just kind of threw me back to, to last year when you thought about Eiserman uh, asking all those difficult questions to a lot of the prospects and some of those stories that came out uh, after the prospect interviews that it's a, uh, it's kind of interesting that, you know, none of the prospects are going to get to experience that uh, at least in person this year, but it's still good that they're able to connect with a lot of these guys uh, and that, that their draft preparation doesn't seem like it's been super hindered uh, based on the way he was describing their ability to set up virtual meetings. So uh, hopefully that's a good sign. And then based on, you know, how the lottery plays out on June 26th, 
the wings can finally get to to work on on their plan. I thought he made a good point too about how you know the fact that this is happening a year in probably really matters just for their familiarity to conduct really meetings at all with the staff and the comfort level, knowing how everyone operates. Um, you know, there are teams that you know have kind of I think like New Jersey's got a. I guess technically he's an interim GM. Like that's interesting how how that would run in this situation. Um, I think he's pretty familiar though with the team. He's been around Fitzgerald. He's been around there for a while, right? Yeah. So there's that. Um, yeah. No. So I, I thought it was a good, a good, uh, definitely a newsy, info heavy week. I mean, certainly the Red Wings are going to be in an uphill climb with what they're able to do um, compared to the teams that are back. I mean, the teams that are back are going to have training camps. They're going to have games to play in this meantime. The Red Wings are in this. Lo- Great long abyss, basically the longest off season I think uh, of anybody, any of the players, basically careers other than maybe injury situations. So I'm very interested in how that's going to play out. All right, let's take a break right there because this feels like a good time to tell everybody about Hawthorne and about smelling good. Guys, smelling good is important, especially right now when we're all cooped up all the time, especially if you got someone else in the vicinity who's smelling you all the time. Uh, and Hawthorne is going to hook you up and find the best way to match you with a cologne. Here's how it works. You're going to take a quick two-minute quiz, and then Hawthorne is going to tell you the two colognes that are best for you, one for work and one for play. It's totally risk-free with shipping and free returns, and it also could be a great gift for Father's Day. You could take the quiz on behalf of your dad, for example. So uh, if you want to smell good, uh, check out Hawthorne at hawthorne.co. That's Hawthorne with an E and .co, not .com. Hawthorne.co and use my promo code athletic to get 10% off your first purchase. That's Hawthorne.co and use my promo code athletic to get 10% off your first purchase. Hawthorne.co. So I, I forgot to ask for questions. There was one that we've been getting like every week and I feel really bad that I haven't asked it yet. So, um, one of our listeners who I can't find their tweet right now, but they want to know, about like kind of relative league quality between some of the European leagues, the AHL, the, the, the CHL leagues. Do we want to spend some time on that while we can, just because, you know, we, we've got uh, no other questions here and uh, we'll kind of end on that note. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, it's been a challenge to over the years, I think a lot of people have taken a stab at trying to, you know, illustrate or identify which leagues and, and by leagues being the junior leagues, um, you know, which leagues are really the strongest leagues to, to play in. And it's always been tough to, um, you know, illustrate that as best as possible. So I think the best attempt at this thus far um, has been by Katarina Wu, who's actually a, a senior at the University of North Carolina here. Um, she presented her research uh, at the Columbus Blue Jackets Hockey Analytics Conference in, in February, and then actually wrote up her, her analysis um, on hockey graphs. That post you can check out is from March 2nd. It's called Which League is Best? Um, but basically in, in her, uh, approach, they actually created this, uh, you know, model that would basically pair up players against one another, uh, to allow them to basically assess which players were better. They generated these strength coefficients and then were able to actually identify, you know, which leagues were the strongest leagues. And so, you know, as you go through her, her model, it's, it's very interesting, you know, to see some of the results. I think when you're talking about, the North American Junior Leagues, uh, you're looking at the OHL being the strongest league, which I think has been, you know, relatively considered, but actually the next strongest league, uh, that was up there was the NCAA. And then from there, you're talking about the WHL, the QMJHL, the USHL, 
Um, and then afterwards, you kind of have a significant drop off into the OJHL, the NAHL, and then the BCHL, um, further drop off even there for, to the AJHL. Uh, and then looking at your professional leagues, um, you know, the AHL is the, the top professional league in her, in her model, followed by the KHL, followed by the SHL, um, followed by Liga, then the, the top Czech league, Czech extra Liga, then the VHL, which is the second tier league in Russia, um, and then the ECHL kind of after that. And so, you know, it's really, really interesting to, to look at kind of models like this and put them all against one another. There's a great graphic in there that really has all of the different leagues you can play in, but this is an important factor to consider when you're looking at one player's production in one league and trying to compare them to another player in another league. You have to remember that the leagues just don't translate, uh, you know, point to point, and it's all about adjusting that. And so you can kind of see uh, from her model how these points get adjusted uh, in the different graphics. And I think it's probably the best uh, attempt out there at, at kind of quantifying league strength. Yeah, so so the listener who asked this, uh, the display name is Coach, and you know, the, the, kind of the addendum is still unsure why Stutzel playing against men doesn't qualify more than those uh, playing in the queue. And certainly the DEL, you know, I'm pretty sure it is a stronger league than the queue, but relative to some of the other pro leagues, you know, the DEL is not as strong historically as, as you know, certainly those other, you know, leagues you talked about in uh, the AHL, KHL, SHL, or Liga. So, um, you know, the DEL, I think, is making progress, and I think – the more you see them invest in young players like the Moritz Siders, the Tim Stutzels, the J.J. Paterkas, and the Lucas Reichels, I think that will help the overall strength of the league and the reputation of the league. Um, but that does kind of help, I think, put into context why, um, you know, there's still some caution. But, again, for me, Stutzel, it, it's unprecedented what he's done at that age in the DEL. I still think it's impressive. Um, but I, it does need to be in context, I mean, especially when you're comparing him to a Raymond or a Holtz where – you know, the SHL is a stronger league. It's harder to get playing time there. It's harder to get um, those minutes and, and ultimately harder to score goals. So um, that doesn't mean that you put those guys ahead of Stutzel necessarily, but I don't think you make it as clear-cut black and white, and certainly the struggle to not make things black and white is as hard as ever <laughs> in, uh, in on the Internet right now. Oh, for sure. So, yeah, I mean, the DEL, it's a strong league. It's a good league, but it is still – you know, a few notches below the KHL and the SHL. I think it is kind of close to par with Liga, if not a little bit behind. Um, you know, Katarina's model actually had the DEL roughly comparable to Liga, uh, and then the NLA, which is in Switzerland. Um, and then the, the Czech extra league were all kind of right there. So it's, it's, it's an interesting cluster. They're all kind of relatively close, but I still think it is kind of a couple notches below the KHL, SHL, and, a- and the AHL. And so it's important to kind of contextualize that, that it is a professional league, but it's still not a professional league that's of the same caliber as as uh, the SHL or the KHL. Those are really the gold standards. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I think it's interesting to hear that the AHL does grade out as the top league there because I think sometimes people want to put it behind the KHL and the SHL in discussion. And I get, especially with the KHL, there's some like unreal players in the KHL. Um, but I think people do sometimes underestimate the AHL. And I, I know that it, the style of play can be more, um, you know, physical and all that than, than some people prefer. But I, I think it is still a really good proving ground and it's got some really good players. So many top prospects are coming through the AHL these days. Yeah, and I think that's uh, that's what allows it to be such a strong league. Now, part of that also, I think, is how 
you know, the system is designed where these players basically have to be funneled, you know, through there, uh, particularly a lot of the European players uh, will use the AHL earlier in their career or when you're talking about the North American players, as soon as they become, you know, ineligible to play in those uh, CHL leagues, they're able to do that. I think more recently you've had some players going the USHL to NCAA to to kind of AHL pathway, but ultimately I think you do get a, a funneling of the good talent that has survived those other leagues uh, to make it to that point, and I think that's what allows it to grade out a little bit stronger. Yeah, I mean that's every that's everything, right? Every the system affects affects the quality of players and and the specific players in in every league. Yep, that's exactly it. Absolutely. All right, I think that is going to do it for us today. Uh, thank you guys for listening as always, and we will be back at you early next week. Um, at some point, we'll we'll pick up the the dominant teams bracket again, but only when there stops being news to cover. So, uh, if you want that back, I guess you hope for a quiet weekend. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Talk to you then. Stay safe. Take care.